Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 26. Who are the end-time servants? Are Zenos's servants who graft in the natural branches, John's 144,000 servants, and Isaiah's servants who restore the house of Israel all the same servants? Welcome to podcast number 26. Who are the end-time servants? As we know that the Lord does everything through his servants, both anciently and in the end time. So some of us are going to have to measure up to, right, to participate in these things of the end time. So we're going to start with Jacob 5, about the allegory of the olive tree, verses 16 and 61. The Lord's servant calls other servants. And we've heard this before, but this is a different context now. So we're going to just go over it once again real quick. The Lord speaking, because that I have preserved the natural branches and the roots thereof, and that I have grafted in the natural branches again into the mother tree, and have preserved the roots of the mother tree, that perhaps the trees of my vineyard may bring forth again good fruit, that I may have joy again in the fruit of my vineyard, and perhaps that I may rejoice exceedingly that I have preserved the roots and the branches of the first fruit. Wherefore go to and call servants, that we may labor diligently with our might in the vineyard, that we may prepare the way that I may bring forth again the natural fruit, which natural fruit is good and the most precious above all other fruit. You've heard before the allegory of the olive tree and the wild branches and the natural branches. We know that in the end time, before this grafting process takes place, the olive tree is full of fruit, both the mother tree and the three daughter trees, and it's all bad fruit. It says it's full of fruit and none of it's any good. So something needs to happen. In other words, the people are ripe in iniquity, put another way. And so the, the one servant is to call other servants to the task. And these are the end time servants because it says you have to prepare the way. And that's imagery, that's language is spoken of, preparing the way for the coming of Jehovah or the coming of the Lord. And someone has to do it. And the natural fruit, what is that? Well, the natural fruit, of course, are all the blessings of God's covenant that is Israel's by right. And so when the natural branches were grafted back into the olive tree, it finally bears fruit. It bore fruit for a little while when the wild branches, the assimilated lineages of Israel, us Latter-day Saints and of the tribe of Ephraim, were grafted in. It bears fruit for a little while, then it goes bad again, as we said. And so something else is needed, and that is grafting the natural branches, the Jews, the ten tribes, the Lamanites back into their mother tree. And so the, read on in um, Jacob 5, 62 and 63, end time servants graft in the branches. The Lord says, Wherefore, let us go to and labor with our might this last time. Now this laboring with the might is mentioned several times here, so indicating that's what it's going to require, not just half by effort, not just when it's convenient or sitting back or only once on Sundays or anything like that. It's a full-time job. This last time, so this is the very last time that there's going to be any labor in the vineyard. Well, behold, the end draweth nigh, the end of the world. And for this is the last time, there it says again, that I shall prune my vineyard, graft in the branches, begin at the last that they may be first, and that the first may be last, and dig about the trees, both old and young, the mother tree and the three daughter trees, the first and the last, and the last and the first, that all may be nourished once again for the last time. Again, the last time, the last time, the last time. Three times it mentions that. So this is the interaction of the Jews and the Gentiles. 
and in short, just as the apostles of Jesus, when the Jews rejected the gospel, took it to the Gentiles in their day. So it reverses itself now, and some among us Gentiles take it back to the Jews and to the Tenderizer and Lamanites of today, who are also called the remnant of the Jews, the Lamanites are. Then we read on in Jacob chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, the Lord sets his hand to restore his people. Now this hand is a metaphor or a, a codename of the Lord's servant, the Lord's right hand, as we've explained previously. And the Lord also has his left hand of punishment, right? Right hand of deliverance, which is the servant, and the left hand of punishment, which is the king of Assyria. And this is referencing some Jacob in the book of Jacob, referencing Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 12 and verse 15, where the Lord calls his servant the stem of Jesse, his, both his ensign and his hand. It's in parallel there. And the second time, as the Book of Mormon refers to it, taken from Isaiah 11:2, refers to the Lord's gathering his people from the four directions of the earth in a new exodus to Zion. And Isaiah coincides with what Jacob is telling us about the grafting in of the natural branches. It's the same thing. In other words, Israelites coming from the four directions to Zion in the new exodus and wandering in the wilderness is the very same thing as their being grafted back in to the olive tree, according to the allegory of Zenos. He says, And the day that he shall set his hand again the second time, that's quoting Isaiah, to restore his people, to recover his people, that's from Isaiah, is the day, even the last time, that the servants of the Lord shall go forth in his power to nourish and prune his vineyard. So this is not an ordinary thing happening. It's, it's a day of power when they are endowed with power from on high to do this work. And that always links to the idea of power over the elements, power over the nations, and so forth. And that is what these servants are endowed with, as we'll see in a moment from other scriptures. To nourish and prune his vineyard, after that the end soon cometh, right on the heels of it. And how blessed are they who have labored diligently in his vineyard. Well, because they wanted to, and they desired to, and they committed to do it, and they covenanted with the Lord to do it. And they were also called from before the foundation of the earth to do it. There are many other scriptures that throw light on this. And how cursed are they, that's on the other hand, shall be cast out into their own place. That's not a very pleasant place, it sounds like. And the world shall be burned with fire. So basically, as we've seen before, we have these two options. Latter-day Saints have these two options. Ministering to the house of Israel or be cast out into their own place, and the Lord has no more use for us. To be either saviors or salt that has lost its savor, so to speak, as Dr. Kevinus tells us. And then we go to Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Jehovah's servants offer acceptable sacrifices. Now, it's really interesting that Isaiah draws on the lowest rung of society, the eunuchs and the foreigners and the people who are captives from other nations, indicating Gentiles here, foreigners, the foreigners who adhere to Jehovah to serve him, who love the name of Jehovah, that they may be his servants. Even foreigners, even Gentiles, can love the name of Jehovah. Of course they can. Anybody can be converted to. All who keep the Sabbath without profaning it, indicating that many are profaning the Sabbath day, but these are holding fast to it, and holding fast to my covenant, it says. Because the Lord's covenant is the covenant with Israel, but it's also the Lord's servant who personifies God's covenant in the end time. So holding fast to the Lord's covenant can mean these two things. 
These will I bring to my holy mountain, or nation, and gladden in my house of prayer. Their offerings and sacrifices shall be accepted on my altar. So in other words, there is a category of foreigners or Gentiles who minister to the house of Israel by offering up acceptable sacrifices. And they become, as the Dr. Chemnitz tells us, the sons of Moses and Aaron and so forth. These people who are kind of like Dr. Chemnitz tells us, the weak things of the, of the world, the weak things of the earth that the Lord is going to use to bring forth to pass his marvelous work in the end time. So who are these servants? Well, they're the same servants by definition and by word links as the, the servants who are grafting in the natural branches in the Book of Mormon, in Zenos' allegory, and also the 144,000 servants of the Book of Revelation. It links to other servants in the Book of Isaiah as well. It's a word link. There's only one category of servants, and that's them, the saviors on Mount Zion, as we'll read in a moment. Then we read in Isaiah 62, verse 6. Jehovah's watchmen intercede for his people. So these watchmen are these same servants because they're doing the same thing. And we can tell they're the same because the things that they're accomplishing are the very same things. He says, I've appointed watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. And the word appoint is also the word he uses of his end-time servant. These are links to the Lord's servant. They work in conjunction with him. Just as in Zenos' allegory of the olive tree, the one servant calls other servants. Here they are. They're called watchmen. That's another mission that they perform. Now, Isaiah is drawing on disparate imagery from his own day, taking a piece of this and a piece of that, but he's bringing it together through an interesting interrelationship of these passages. That's why you have to search Isaiah to pull out their meaning. You can't just say, well, this is one category, and now he's talking about somebody else. No. If they're doing the same thing, and they're, they're all part of one end-time scenario, it doesn't matter where the imagery came from originally or from what historical context they came from. In the end time, it's all one and the same category. I've appointed watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. So they're very interested in what's going on. We shall not be silent day or night. Why not? I mean, what are they, why are they not, not silent about? Well, because they're calling upon Jehovah. Day and night. How can someone be doing that day and night and not get sleep, right? Well, because these servants or these watchmen in the end are translated beings, as we see, and so they can do that day or night. They're intercessors, they're saviors, they're spiritual kings and queens. You who call upon Jehovah, let not up, nor give him respite, day and night, till he reestablishes Jerusalem and makes it renowned in the earth. In other words, till the whole job is done of establishing Zion on the earth. And these watchmen, of course, are, there's two categories in, in the book of Isaiah of watchmen, these new watchmen that he appoints in the end time and also, they replace the old sleeping dogs that are mentioned in Isaiah 56, who are watchmen who are not watching properly. We go to Isaiah 49, which Nephi quotes, 1 Nephi 21, 2 Nephi 6, and 2 Nephi 10, verse 9. This is quoted a lot, as you've already discovered, but it gives more insight into who these servants are. And they are the Gentile kings and queens who gather Israel. Thus says my Lord Jehovah, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles, raise my ensign to the peoples. As I said before, these are terms that identify God's servant, the right hand of the Lord, and the ensign that rallies the elect of God to Zion. And they will bring your sons in their bosoms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. These sons and daughters in the book of Isaiah are by definition God's elect. He said he will send his angels and they will gather his elect from the four quarters of the earth. These are the angels. These are the kings and queens of the Gentiles, the seraphim. 
and the elect are those whom they bring up to the church of the firstborn, and so forth, as we'll see in a moment. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. Of course, spiritual kings and queens, proxy saviors, who bring them home to safety in Zion at a time when the entire world is being destroyed all around them and evil rulers are keeping them captive and they need to be released. And these kings and queens, these proxy saviors, have power over the elements to do that and power over nations and rulers. As the Lord's servant does, they receive their power from him. If we go to Isaiah 65, 8 and 9, a remnant is saved for his servant's sake. Thus says Jehovah, as when there is juice in a cluster of grapes, and someone says, don't destroy it, it is still good. So will I do for the sake of my servants. He's going to do this for their sake, right? That means their proxy saviors, intercessors for Israel, their Davidic kings under the Davidic covenant, that is, interceding for God's people, ministering to them. So will I do for the sake of my servants by not destroying everything. When he's going to destroy a masses and masses of people, he's going to save some out of it. Why? Well, for the sake of these servants who are ministering to them and who are proxy saviors for them, who intercede for these people of the house of Israel to whom they minister. And then the Lord listens to them, kind of like the brother Jared asking his brother to intercede for them and their families. There were about eight families, I guess, they had eight barges, and the Lord had compassion on the brother and granted his request. Well, the brother Jared there was a proxy savior for the other families, right? And so this is who these people are. He says, I will extract offspring out of Jacob and out of Judah, heirs of my mountains or nations. My chosen ones shall inherit them. My servants shall dwell there. His chosen ones are the elect of God who inherit the millennial age and who inherit lands of promise in the millennium. It says mountains, but it can be implied nations. They will be heirs of my mountains, heirs of my nations. And the servants are these same servants uh, that we've been talking about. Then we read in Isaiah 54, 16 and 17, Jehovah's servants receive divine protection. Well, because they have to be empowered of God over the elements and over nations and weapons and so forth. And these evil forces are going to try to destroy them. They'll need to have a reserve of protection and strength. It says, Jehovah speaking, It is I who create the smith who fans the flaming coals, forging weapons to suit his purpose. It is I who create the ravager to destroy. Well, who is the smith and the ravager in the book of Isaiah? It is the king of Assyria. And he makes weapons of all kinds, well, weapons of mass destruction because he wants to commit genocide of entire nations, as we see in chapter 10 of Isaiah. But the Lord says, Whatever weapon is devised against you, it shall not succeed. Every tongue that rises to accuse you, you shall refute. This is the heritage of the servants of Jehovah, and such is their vindication by me, says Jehovah, or their righteousness by me. In other words, these are given power over the elements, over the nations, and over the wicked rulers and so forth, even over the king of Assyria. Get the job done and rescue and these elect of God from throughout the world and bring them in an exodus, and wandering in the wilderness to Zion. That is the picture we get from Isaiah. Then we go to Isaiah 52, 8, which Jesus mentions in 35, 16 and 35, 20. Zion's watchmen cry out. Isaiah says, Hark, your watchmen lift up their voice. As one they cry out for joy, 
for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord reestablishes Zion or restores Zion. Here again we have these watchmen, these end-time proxy saviors, these servants of Jehovah, kings and queens of the Gentiles, all one category, who are glad, and they lift up the voice. But the voice is also one of, it's another metaphor or codename of the Lord's servant, because there are two voices in the end time. One is that of the king of Assyria, who personifies the voice of the wicked, and the other is the voice of God, which is the Lord's end time servant. He's a voice of God to his people. Then we read in Revelation 7, verses 2 through 4, 144,000 servants are sealed. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. There were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now we have a type and shadow of that in the book of Ezekiel, for when the Babylonians came in to destroy uh, Jerusalem and the temple, take the Jews captive, there were certain righteous men in and around the temple who were serving there who had the name of Jehovah written on their foreheads. The Babylonians entirely passed over them, didn't even see them, and they were spared. This is given to them to protect them, the sealing of the Father's name on their foreheads. It also likely indicates that they have the sealing power. And there are 144,000 out of all the tribes of the children of Israel, yes, but principally Ephraim because it is the birthright tribe. And here Ephraim is fulfilling his end-time role. There have been 2,700 years of assimilation of the house of Israel, including Ephraim, into the other tribes and the mingled lineages and a lot of cross-breeding, so to speak. And also these servants are assigned to be judges over the 12 tribes of Israel, as the apostles of Jesus' time were assigned to be judges over the 12 tribes. Then we go to a Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. 144,000 servants stand on Mount Zion. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Whenever anything has to do with the father, then it's always the highest spiritual level that a person can attain in this life. And like the three Nephites, they inherited the father's kingdom. They received divine protection. They have power over the elements, power over their enemies, and so forth. In Doctrine and Covenants 77, verse 11, it says, What are we to understand by the sealing of the 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 out of every tribe? We are to understand that those who are sealed are high priests ordained unto the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel. They operate under the auspices of the holy priesthood after the order of God, which means they have that extraordinary power given to them, and they're ordained by God the Father directly, as we learn from other scriptures to minister the everlasting gospel, for they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, by the angels to whom is given power over the nations, to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. Because the church of the firstborn are the elect of God, just men made and women made perfect. So their job is to bring them up to that spiritual level, and they can function on their own. They won't need proxy saviors after that. That also, because they have proxy saviors during the initial time of their conversion, the Lord is able to bring them out using those empowered servants, the Father's name on their foreheads, to, to bring them out, to be proxy savers for them, to lead them in an exodus to Zion. And during that exodus, they themselves, and wandering in the wilderness, they themselves become the elect of God and end up in Zion in that elect state and thus can live in 
Zion and her stakes, to welcome the Savior and to be able to abide and live in his presence when he comes. So in summary, this was end-time servants, John's 144,000 servants and Zenos' servants, who graft in the natural branches of God's people, comprise one of the same category of servants. They're all one of the same group of people who are doing this in the end time. And that is our role as Latter-day Saints. And whether we take it on is up to you, of course. The time frame is the end time when God's servants restore God's people of the House of Israel. And moving forward, may we qualify to serve among God's elect end time servants? Let's think about that. And, and by the way, while we're thinking about it, let's try to figure out what's going to require. What do we need to equip ourselves with in order to function in, in that great calling? Meanwhile, we can prepare in every way that we can till that time comes. Next time, we're going to discuss how do translated beings exemplify what we could become. And that'll be interesting. Recommended reading, End Time Prophecy, a Judeo-Mormon Analysis. Thank you very much for listening today. God bless you all. See you next time. Please share. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn Do Book of Mormon instances of translated beings foreshadow what Latter-day Saints may become who qualify by doing the kinds of works they did?